Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Deborah Fossello, RNBC, PhD, Director of the Graduate Nursing Program at Franciscan University, giving a talk entitled, Attachment in Pregnancy and Birth. Ms. Fossello's talk was part of the Mother and Child Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I've been an OB nurse since 1978, so it's been a long time. I've been in the field. Um, my interest for my, in my doctoral studies uh, after a while, because I started out looking at father-daughter attachment, and we were, our speaker last night was talking about the importance of fathers, and that's really where I started, actually, my re- research interest. But then the more I studied, the more I looked, the more I dug into the topics, it all went back to the mom. And, you know, now the father's so important because for his support of the mother and all that. The mother determines especially during pregnancy, how close the father gets. You know, it's just the way it is. So it really does go back to the mother first. And of course, there's so many things that influences the mother's attachment and how she takes care of herself during pregnancy. So what I ended up um, going to get really going looking back at, because they were, well, everyone talks about mother-child attachment, and that was all in the research for a long time. It's still, I don't know, it kind of is still is somewhat. But I said it starts somewhere else. You know, that's not the beginning. And I kept looking at the, the newest literature and I said, this starts in pregnancy and even before. So that was where my area of research for my dissertation, that's where it took a turn. And I ended up um, studying internal fetal attachment. So what, what I'm going to present today is the my research on maternal fetal attachment, but also some other things to make it practical. You know, I mean, how do, what do you do with this? You know, how do you make it better? And that's what I hope to get across today. These are my objectives. Uh, investigate the history of attachment from the 20th century and beyond. Define the concept of attachment. Discuss the trends in maternal fetal health in the United States. Describe how attachment contributes to maternal infant health. Um, the reason I brought this up, I actually went hunting for this person. 
I, I didn't know who it was, but my grandmother was a teacher. My grandmother was raised on a farm, uh, went and ended up going to Bowling Green Normal School in Ohio, and um, I have a grade in my office from 1915 and my, 1916, and my sister has her 1915 grades. She was a school teacher, and she was an educated lady, and she believed him. Uh, not totally. My mother was not out in the backyard, but but the whole idea that we're too tender with our children, that we should leave them cry. And when I wondered where this came from, it all goes back to John Watson. And people at the time thought he was progressive. The educated people listened to him somewhat. The non-educated people were actually better off, of course. <laughs> they followed their maternal instincts to care of their children. But my grandmother told me, yeah, it was just somebody way back in time, you know, and I used to, I listened to him, and I tried to follow his principles, and I thought, wow, no wonder my mom had so much issues with, uh, you know, attachment. So it, so it was a personal thing, and, you know, I was a, like a quest on my, for my, on my own to figure out how this happened, you know, how these ideas came about. And even talk to even people today, there's a lot of people still out there that think we should let children cry. Now, it's okay. I mean, as they get older, of course you have to let them cry some. But I'm talking about newborns. Because what does that do to a newborn? It creates separation. It cre there's a lot of problems that come from that. Well, let me go on. Dr. John Bowlby. And this was published in 1969. He actually, and here's one of his books, Maternal Care and Public Health by John Bowlby. Um, Deprivation of Maternal Care is the topic of this book. It was first published in 1951. He was one of the first that looked at this issue because he was living in that era. He was seeing the problems. Bowlby believed that the primary caregiver, usually the mother, crucial to healthy child development. He found that maternal deprivation and separation in early years of the child's development were damaging. He saw these children who were in institutions who had no conscience, you know, that really had no, no, no feelings for other people, no. And so he was, he was investigating this and started investigating these issues. So he's considered the father of attachment. So the definition for maternal fetal attachment is maternal feelings of affection and enduring commitment to the fetus. So attachment during pregnancy is feeling feel love for the baby and also being committed to the baby. And that's really important, very important part of my research. This is this picture of attachment. I just love this picture when I found it. Look at that baby's face, you know. Uh, it's just one, one way that kind of exemplifies attachment. This is the model I developed in my doctoral research. Um, it was a, a theoretical model of maternal fetal attachment. This model could be used for practice or research. And uh, it looks at family relationships and how they impact maternal health practices and antenatal attachment. And then all those concepts lead to neonatal outcomes. So we're going to talk a little bit, that's what I'll be speaking about as we go along. 
But you know, it doesn't begin even in pregnancy. It begins with the family. It begins before that. It begins the child's whole development, how they grow up, you know, how they're influenced. And you know, nobody's perfect, no family's perfect, but the better attachment is crucial to a healthy child and family. Maternal health practices, how they were defined. Activity in which the pregnant woman engages that affects her health and the health of her fetus. So this is how the woman takes care of herself during pregnancy. It includes eating well, uh, going to the doctor for prenatal exams, um, not taking drugs, uh, uh, illegal drugs especially. It, it includes a lot of things. Family relationships. Um, this is looking at family cohesion or emotional bonding and focus on how systems balance separateness versus togetherness. Family flexibility is the quality and expression of leadership, relationship roles, and negotiations during change. And communication is making information, ideas, thoughts, and feelings known. Um, look, a family's, you know, healthy, according to the recent, a lot of the research that I looked at, healthy families are cohesive. They work together. They support each other. They're flexible and adaptable. As, and there's a, there's a, with the model that I use for the family relationships, it looks like a rainbow. And on the, the left end is the family that's chaotic. You know, we always we always talk about chaotic families and how you know they're everywhere and, and they don't have any seem to have much structure. And then on the other end of the rainbow, though, are rigid families. We don't often think about that, but rigidity doesn't allow the children to really learn and grow. I mean, they don't they don't learn to develop self identity because they don't get to try and fail. You know. So these healthy families are really in the middle of the rainbow. So it's kind of, you know, they have flexibility and they're adaptable. But really what gets families through difficult times, and every family goes through difficult times, is the communication. And if you want to make a change in a family and help them, you help them communicate. That's one of the first things, and I think most, one of the most powerful things you can do is to help them to speak to each other, to seek support from each other, and those sorts of things, as best you can. I, I always tell the students uh, when I teach, you know, help them identify the support people. Maybe their own immediate family, or they, they don't feel they can get support from them, but is there an aunt and uncle? Is there a cousin? You know, if there's somebody, if not, how about if they go to a church, if they're in a, or in a group somewhere, or encourage them to do that, you know. So people need support. We all know that, and it's very important throughout life. <coughs> research suggests that return. This is the research that I did, and also research that return-fetal attachment positively associated with maternal health practices, maternal-fetal attachment, and neonatal outcomes. Um, this is where the research says. Maternal health practices are associated with neonatal child 
And the new, the new study, um, new science epigenetics, is even bringing more light onto the subject where we're looking at how environment affects actually changes the genes. And actually, they say in one generation, you can actually change your genetic profile or how the genes express themselves because of how you live, you know, if you smoke, how you eat, those sorts of things, and looking at the environmental impacts of those on our genes. Positive paternal fetal attachment influences positive birth outcomes. Really um, finding that to be very true. Problem. It's a big problem. The United States faces a high probability of continued poor pregnancy outcomes due to increases in maternal mortality and high numbers of preterm and low birth weight infants. Currently, this was 2013, the preterm birth rate is 11.38%. And the low birth rate is 8.02%, which demonstrates an improvement in the last few years. We're still like number 37, 38 in the world, with, uh, in the industrialized world, with our outcomes, our, our neonatal outcomes, our babies who are being born. It's pretty bad. And the maternal death rate has actually gone up. So last two years. So that's scary. The rise in maternal morbidity, morbidity, which is illness. Severe morbidity is 12.9% per 1,000 deliveries. That's high. Overall mortality, death, and postpartum period increased by 66% from 19, 1998 to 2009. That's not great. That's pretty scary. Impacts over 50,000 women each year. So we're not doing well with our birth outcomes and our taking care of our pregnant women. Now, some of this, they think, is due to the high C-section rate. But also, we believe it may be related to nutrition. Definitely related to infections, sexually transmitted diseases. Um, as, and then we just don't know. Some of it we just don't know why. Maternal mortality, maternal death rates have doubled in the last 25 years. It's pretty scary. In 2010, the maternal death rate rose to 12.7 for 1,000 life, that's just 1,000 life births. African American women were 3.2 times more likely to die. African Americans are always more at risk. They have higher date, uh, the infants have higher death rates. We don't, we, it's not linked to, they haven't found a linkage between those rates and, and the, the diseases and things that we just talked about. So we still don't know exactly why. <coughs> This just looks like, looks at the maternal death rate, 2010. Hemorrhage is still number one. Now we have gone down a lot um, from what embolism, pulmonary embolism is still up there. Amnon fluid embolism, infection, hypertension, cardiomyopathy, anesthesia, cerebral vascular accident, cardiovascular conditions, and non-cardiovascular conditions. So. Um, 
Marriage is still number one. We think that maybe overuse of the tosa during labor can actually, well, we know that can lead to postpartum hemorrhage. So that's one of the things we're looking at. Yes? Uh, until what point is maternal death considered as linked to the pregnancy? Out six weeks. The, the uh, postpartum period. Okay. Yeah, so if they get a, even a blood clot, you know, in within six weeks or anything. Actually, yeah, it can be linked to a lot of things. So, but it's six weeks after delivery, still postpartum, so it's still part of the childbearing, perinatal time. Change in future by promoting attachment during pregnancy. Increasing communication support from the family. That's one way we can promote attachment. Encouraging positive health behaviors such as prenatal care, avoid harming harmful substances, good nutrition, avoiding alcohol and drugs, of course. And that's a big issue now. We have so many babies now being born addicted to drugs. And it's so sad. It really is. And it's going to harm our future generation for sure. Not only our moms, but um, and then that moms, of course, should they use intravenous drugs, they're exposed to possibly obtaining hep uh, C virus, hepatitis C, which is also on the rise. So we're seeing, we're, we're really facing a lot of issues. Um, the thing with prenatal care is if women are doing drugs, lots of times they don't want to go for their prenatal care. They'll skip one. That's one of the signs that they may be using drugs. It's because they don't want to show up at the doctor's office. They don't want to have their urine tested. They don't want to, you know, be found out. So they'll skip appointments. They'll reschedule appointments. They won't show up for two or three months, and then the baby's at risk. You know, so that can be a real issue, also. Promoting attachment after birth. Promote family involvement in mother and infant care through education, counseling, role modeling, remote breastfeeding, encourage rooming in. Um, one of the things I, I, I didn't get to research a lot, but one of the things that has come up in the literature, it makes sense, is that if a woman's depressed or she's using drugs or somehow she's emotionally unavailable to that baby, that that definitely interferes with bonding. Because bonding, if you go back to the definition, it's feelings of affection and also commitment to that baby. If she's committed, she's more likely to take care of herself. Right? She's committed to that pregnancy. And I'm not saying necessarily that you know, we know some 50% of our babies are unplanned. And we know that if they're planned, if we said, I mean, things, if they're planned pregnancies, they're more likely to have better outcomes. But even if they are unplanned, a lot of women still are very committed to their babies, their, their, their fetuses in pregnancy. So, but it's so important. And, just to go through kind of the psychological adjustments during pregnancy, the first trimester, many women are ambivalent. They're even if they plan the pregnancy, they all, all once they find out they're pregnant, and it's like oh my, and there's no real confirmation for them that 
there's actually a baby in there. <laughs> you know, so I mean, they might have an ultrasound, and the ultrasound just shows a little spot. You know, that first, I'm told they get, unless it's further along in the first trimester, which they could actually see something. But, so it's common for women to be kind of ambivalent about the pregnancy of the first trimester. Um, and, and what that means is, oh, yeah, I'm happy. Oh, I got, now i got a plan for this baby, or I have a child I have to raise for 18 to 25 years, which is our adolescence keeps getting longer for those of us who have children that age. <laughs> you know, it's like a long commitment. You know, it's, you know well, whatever. Um, but so that's normal. So just realize that when one comes to you and says, oh, you know, I, you know, I'm scared, or I don't know what to think, just give her encouragement. Tell her it's normal to feel that way. It's okay, you know. But and then, you know, one thing I'd always do when I talk, I worked with the teenagers who were pregnant, is I have a book. I could have brought it, but I have a book that actually goes through and shows you what the baby looks like at every like every month or anything during the first few weeks, and I has the possibility changes in looks and makes them. I even sometimes we actually copied the book and, and cut the cut the fetuses out so that people can hold them up to their belly and see how far, you know, how big is that baby, you know, inside of me. And it's just, until the woman really feels that, the baby move and the confirmation of that pregnancy, because you can see it on a slide or you can see it on ultrasound, but until you feel it, you know, it's, it's still not real lots of times. So about 16 to 18 weeks is when the people start feeling the baby move, start feeling that fluttering. And then that really confirms lots of times for women that pregnancy. So that's why actually I didn't do research on women under 18 weeks, because I wanted them to feel that baby move before, you know, I did this research. You know, about, you know. The second trimester is the time when lots of times you can teach women. It's the best time to teach pregnant women, because they're comfortable usually. You know, they've been through the tiredness of the first trimester, the sickness of the first trimester usually. And they feel more, you know, feel comfortable. They're feeling good, they feel the baby move, they know they're pregnant, they really, really believe it now. And their bodies are changing. And, but um, lots of times that's the best time to help people make changes in their life, and their lifestyles especially. I always look at pregnancy as an opportunity for change for any woman. Because if a woman truly cares about their baby, their fetus, their child, they this is one time when they will make changes. <clears throat> they will maybe quit smoking, they can avoid drugs, or at least cut down to half a pack a day or less. <laughs> at least do that, because research shows that under half a pack a day is a lot better than over half a pack a day. So, you know, making small steps towards health is so important. And it can really make, truly impact your, the birth of the child and how they, not only how they developed in utero, but how they adapt after birth. So these um, maternal health practices are really important. Promote breastfeeding. Um, the goal, I, 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 in my mind, I don't have exact numbers for Healthy People 2020, our national goals. But one of them is definitely increased breastfeeding. And more and more research is coming out about the benefits of breastfeeding. Now, if a woman can't breastfeed for some reason, the next best thing is to pump the milk and get the milk in a bottle. 
And that's, just, that's the, the next thing we recommend, you know, um, and then four minutes the last. Breastfeeding, even the promoting attachment, of course, that baby's right at the optimal level for you to look at the baby, talk to the baby, interact with the baby. The baby's getting milk from the mother, which is optimal. And so um, breastfeeding produces prolactin, uh, releases oxytocin in the mom's bloodstream, and prolactin levels increase with breastfeeding. They'll actually, prolactin goes way low if you don't breastfeed. And oxytocin and prolactin are wanting hormones. There's no doubt. So, um, our research, well, research is obviously, for the last 10, 20 years, is demonstrating that women who breastfeed at all, um, oops, yeah, you're right. I know. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully my goal's on then. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. The breastfeeding, um, actually the children are breastfed. The children who are breastfed have 10 points higher IQs. And we do that in our maternity class. We I have a friend who's a breastfeeding consultant. And she comes in and talks to them. And, and we had a last, <coughs> last spring, we had them raise their hands how many of them were breastfed. Almost all of them were breastfed. That's amazing. Um, now, a research study came out two days ago from Brazil that looked at children who were breastfed over, and it was 30 years ago. So they were. It's a 30-year study with 3,000 almost 500 participants from Brazil, and they they came out that if a child was breastfed more than a year, you know, up to a year or a year more than a year, that their IQs were increased by 4 percent but also their education levels were increased and their earnings were increased by a third over the rest of the population. So that just came out two days ago. So it's pretty interesting stuff. So and, uh, we, can't, we cannot manufacture what's in breast milk. Yeah, they keep trying, it doesn't work. And for a long time, women in our society were led to believe that bottle feeding, of course, was the best way to go. And that did free up women, of course. You know, breastfeeding is a, definitely a challenge for women who want to work and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, the manufacturers of formula made everybody believe that that was the thing to do that was best for your baby to have formula. And, and, they, and lots of times, even the immigrants coming into the country felt that it was in the USA that they should breastfeed, they should bottle feed because that was the thing to do. And, and people who had money or some wealth or at least some income um, weren't poor bottle fed. That was the, the visual. But now, we well, we keep encouraging people to breastfeed. In the Washington and Oregon states, about 98% of women breastfeed. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And um, so we're trying to change it. There's been a lot, lactation consultants are very helpful. You know, we try to have one every hospital. We don't, but we try. And um, glacially, of course, can be, is very helpful also. So if a woman doesn't want to breastfeed or doesn't feel she can't breastfeed, which well, almost everybody can if they're helped, they're assisted properly. Um, and, but you have to have a commitment to it, too. Again, we encourage women to pump 
and feed breast milk in the bottle because that that's the next best thing. And you can do that for a length of amount of time. Now, if a woman gets very stressed, she can drive her breast milk. So, again, take care of the mom, <coughs> take care of the baby. And this is where to start. You have to think about who's most, who's, who's the cheerleader of our children? Parents, cheerleaders, I should say, or the promoters of our children. If you don't have parents <coughs> to care, who cares? Right? I mean, these children are lost. No wonder. Uh, you know, it's pretty sad. But, so this is really important. Um, and they talk about rooming in the hospital. And a lot of our units now are designed for rooming in. And what we mean is having the baby with the home 24 hours a day. Now they can always call the nurses. They can come in and help them. A lot of the research, though, especially with bonding and the importance of keeping the baby with the mother all times. Immediately after birth, that baby should be put on the chest and should stay there for the assessments. It shouldn't be and the baby should not be removed from the world. And it's really, you know, more and more we're seeing the impact of that. Um, keeping the mom and baby together is so important. Now, what if the mom has a C-section and she's not awake or not available? Then what we're recommending is that the, the dads do skin to skin. Put that baby skin, you put a diaper on the baby, of course, and then skin to skin on that on bare chest and put a blanket over top of that. The baby's temperature will remain within half a degree of the parent's temperature. The, the, the parents are the people, adults are perfect incubators. <laughs> so you lay that baby on your chest and the temperature will remain within half a degree. So that baby won't get cold. So and people they recommend four hours of that after birth uninterrupted. So the new perinatal outcomes of just that I think they've been released. They were proposed, but I think they're out there now. That's one of the skin to skin right after birth is one of the major ones. Because we need we need we want people to bond with their children. Because they're, 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 they take care of their children. You know, they're, they're the caretakers of these children. And we really need them to feel love and commitment to their children. And if we support you know, not that that won't happen. Because bonding usually does happen. And the bonding takes time. You know, it's not, not immediate for a lot of people. But if you bring that, the newborn baby onto your chest and hold that baby and look at that baby and put blankets over baby and breastfeed that baby, man, how could you not love it? <laughs> you know? I mean, that's just, it, it just, just does everything. So, this is just a picture of skin to skin, you know, in the hospital or wherever you are. Just bring that baby, allow that baby to be there. And we're not recommending now that the baby bathe very soon after birth. We used to wait like three or four hours, most places do. But actually there's some places that aren't bathing the baby for a while, I mean even a day. So you wipe them off well at birth. And most of them are pretty good <laughs> wiped off. But you just have to remember though if they aren't bathed then they have you know, fluid on them, blood on them, and they are considered um, contaminated as far as touching them without gloves. And you I mean, parents can, but as a, a healthcare worker, you don't want to be 
touching them without gloves unless you know their food age first. And only because they have all that possibly possible infectious uh, material on them. Breastfeeding. Again, this is a picture of breastfeeding. A mom covering her breast while she feeds. Breastfeeding is not easy for all people. You know, people think, oh, just put that baby to breast, that's not hard. <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> a lot of people have difficulty with breastfeeding. One of the things, um, again, the perinatal, new perinatal goal, uh, objectives, or whatever you want to call it, are that baby should be to breast within an hour of birth. <laughs> used to be four hours. <laughs> they found out. And usually when that baby's awake, you know, that baby's born, they're usually wide-eyed and awake. And that's the time to get them to breastfeed. And they put them to breast. And again, that's why you don't want them separated. If you, if you go back to the other picture, that baby, that baby's asleep. But that's, that's not right after birth. Right after birth, babies are awake for at least an hour. You know, and they're crying, maybe, or moving around. And if they're on their chest, most times they will latch by themselves. It's amazing. Actually, there's videos that they take in slow motion, actually, of a baby being born, put on the woman's pelvis, and crawled up to their breast and actually latched on by themselves. That's so funny. That's like that's amazing to me. You know, um, they actually do have films of that. So, I'm not, and again, we can't be judgmental. We try not to be judgmental of people who don't want to breastfeed. It's really important not to get that. But we want to encourage people. We need to teach people earlier. We actually talk to people like kids in high school about this or junior high. <laughs> If you say, oh yeah, that's when it really should start, you know, not not when they're pregnant. Although that's also also can be a good time, of course. And the uh, baby friendly initiative in the, this country, we still we have about 450 hospitals across the country that are considered baby friendly, which means they totally promote breastfeeding. The only problem with that initiative is that hospitals try. But if a hospital is not allowed to, to accept free formula from the formula companies to be very baby friendly. So if they want, if somebody wants the bottle feed, they have to buy the formula. And that's one of the deterrents to this baby friendly initiative. So, but still more, I know Cleveland hospitals, a couple of them just became baby friendly. East High Regional down the river here is trying to become very baby friendly. So, and what they're doing is getting, talking to every, especially not just about breastfeeding, but talking to every pregnant woman that they see about breastfeeding and about skin to skin after birth. And every once in a while you'll have people say, oh, I don't want them on my chest, you know, they'll be bloody and they'll be, you know, they're yucky. But oh my heavens, any of you, well, I'm sure there's still people that feel that way, but when you see your baby for the first time, <laughs> Oh, all you, I, well, all you want to do is grab it, you know? <laughs> You're just like, oh, yeah, I'll take it. Another thing is um, women, like we have a third of our women having C-sections, so we're trying to reduce the C-section rate. But now what we're trying to do is def we'll definitely do even skin-to-skin -skin in the OR. Unfortunately, I can't keep the OR that cold. 
<laughs> that are done, but the Zohar sometimes are very cold, it's all very close. But again, trying to let women have their baby skin to skin in the OR, and I'll actually allow them to breastfeed for the first time. Because that first, it, it's, it's almost like imprinting, you know? When you get that baby to breast the first time, they're more likely, and mom gives mom, makes the mother feel more successful. You know, I can do this. Because especially first time mom, first time breastfeeding mom, it's scary. And what, you know, if your baby doesn't eat, that's one of the scariest things for a new mother. Mom is not going to eat, it's not going to get enough. You know? Well, another thing is, um, you know, babies lose weight after birth due to fluid changes and things. And they can lose five to ten percent of the birth weight, and that's acceptable. And that's even less times. We're monitoring them in the hospital for two days, maybe three days at the most with a C-section. And if they lose five more than five percent, maybe eight eight percent, we get nervous. Of course, we start seeing that baby's not getting enough or whatever, not eating enough. Um, but a bottle baby, we give them seven days to regain their weight from birth. Breastfed baby. They should have two weeks to regain their birth weight. Once it takes a little while for milk to come in, takes the baby. We said we should give that baby a week just to get used to feed, eating, you know. Because it does take mom has to learn, a baby has to learn. So we get too excited and scared. I don't know. There was a disaster a long time ago in Mexico where a hospital got buried by a volcano, actually. And the babies were in the nursery, and they were buried for 10 days. And they were still alive when they got to them. And what that, made, what that tells me, and they were healthy babies, of course. You know, if you weren't a healthy baby, you'd be different. But it just shows you that actually, you know, they can survive, and we can give them time to learn to eat. That's what I'm trying to say. We can give them time instead of wanting to supplement them, wanting to rush things, you know, it doesn't, but of course we give them one, and they should be waiting, you know, after they go to the hospital and check on, of course. I'm not saying we ignore them or anything, but but we need to give them time and not get so excited and say, oh no, you got to, you know, no more supplementation is what we're Babies don't need supplemented with formula, they do not need water, so there's no reason they should have breast milk before, so. Even if they're sick, until they're about a year old, they don't need water. So it's interesting stuff. Do you have any questions? I'm trying to think of something else I should talk about. Yes, Stephen. Um, what about with regards to the cutting early of the umbilical cord? I know I've heard a talk, I think it was last year at the Atma conference, right. where they actually, with regards to this uh, loss in weight, they said that the delaying the cutting of the umbilical cord allows the. We're recommending actually they do delay it till, definitely till the cord stops pulsating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the baby should be cord, of course, at the level, same level as the mom. You don't want to put it down. Yeah, you infuse more. <laughs> Keep them up, they're going to lose more blood. So, yeah, definitely. It's actually, yeah, the newer recommendations, and I don't know if people are doing it yet. The, um, that's something mom can ask. You know, these are things, you know, some of these changes occur from consumer end. That's why it's so good for moms to be educated. Because they can say, you know, if, if people listen to them, hopefully the provider will, you know, you can negotiate this ahead of time. You know, and that's one thing, yes. Because they're finding the health babies are healthier. 
And if it's possible, in a, I, I mean, obviously I'm not an OBGYN, so it is possible to have the baby still attached to the, the placenta and put, giving it to the mom. Um, it, that is a possibility. Well, you're supposed to keep it at the same level, so yeah, you have to be a little careful, I think. You know, but it doesn't take long for that cord to keep. You can, you can hold the baby. It doesn't take that long for that cord to stop pulsating. You know, I don't, so I'm not sure about how, what, but they always said it kind of at the same level, you know, keeping it at the same level. And you said you, you put the baby on the mother within the first hour? Oh, the baby should go right on the cord, right on. since okay. the cord's cut. Okay. Yeah. Should go right on the chest and covered with a warm blanket. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know we we did a pretty good job of cleaning off those babies when they're born, and of course that baby skin has never been touched. You can you imagine what that must do to them? To get the towel and then go like this, like we did to this poor baby. Took about seven input. They must be like, ah, you know. But uh, it's one thing that um, encourages them to breathe and take that first breath. You know, and, and it dries them because, especially their head, you've got to make sure their heads are dry because that's where they lose their heat, lose their heat loss. Because their heads are a fourth of their body surface area. So, you know, so that head, you know, a lot of hair, you've got to go like this and you dry them all off and then you give them the mom. Yeah. And that, you know, again, they're pretty clean. And actually, you know, we know the HIV status is most these women. I mean, unless they walk in the door and deliver. <laughs> Everyone gets checked for HIV, so you know, at least it's being in pregnancy. So. We're pretty, we fairly confident that they, but we try to treat everybody, of course, with precautions, just in case they caught something <laughs> since we saw them last. But um, yeah, most, uh, that yeah, more stuff, research has come out about the, the core blood and the benefit of not climbing the cord right away. So. And there's an increase in home births. Um, I saw the research, I was, I was interested, and one of my students, here's what did it, one of my students last spring, now she's a senior nursing student, okay, and she kept, she had a doctor that she really liked, doctor, and he was sick. He wasn't available. He couldn't he didn't see her, you know. And she was getting really insecure about this. And she was afraid, well, she was afraid of the nurses and other doctors wouldn't listen to her. That they wouldn't follow what she wanted in the hospital. You know, and I just read this research about her birth and how it's on the rise. Pennsylvania is one of the top states in the country for births. And, and um, so, and people, it's really an underground, you know, people don't talk much about it uh, because there's so many, there's some legal implications, of course. And I'm always, you know, I was never one as a perinatal specialist, and in my profession, I was never one to advocate for home birth because, you know, what we see in the hospital is everyone that had trouble, that are almost bleeding to death when they come in. So it's very scary. And there's no regulation. You know, of the, especially the lay providers, and that's what I'm talking about, or the lay midwives, not the nurse midwives. It's hard for the nurse midwives, and some, they do, some states that nurse midwives do do home births, but, or they have a birthing clinic. But um, there's a lot of, with insurance, malpractice insurance, there's a lot of issues with that. You know, really, 
kind of ties their hands as far as the homebirth. So most of the homebirths are done by lay people. And uh, but the outcomes, the, the outcomes from the study that I saw, and there was a lot of births, was very favorable for homebirths. And of course, I know that recently in one of the medical journals that they released just the opposite. <laughs> so I, what I really want to do is get in there and see where they got their data, you know. But so you're going to get conflicting information. But it's going to happen. We're going to, even if the state makes it illegal, like New York, they still do it. So what happened, I guess, in New York, I talked to, I went and interviewed a nurse, uh, a lay midwife. She's actually coming up on her 500th birth. And she's in Pennsylvania. She does a lot of Amish births. She does other people, too. She actually did, um, has done feedbacks, which is vaginal birth after cesarean sections. She's got twins. She's, I was like, wow, you know. And uh, she has birthing, two birthing suites in her house. When they come to the house, or else she sometimes goes to their house. It's very interesting. My, anyways, my student, who I didn't expect to have a home birth, actually ended up having a home birth. So I guess her roommate from Franciscan here, his mother was a lay midwife, and she knew about her, and she talked to her, and she went to labor, and she called her. And she came down here, and she said, your 6 a.m. is dilated, Ted, we got a, it's about time for birth. For 6 a.m., do you want to move to a hospital or stay here? She said, I want to stay here. So they did the birth at home. And it was actually a complicated birth. It was a, uh, the hand was down as well as the head. So it was a compound presentation for that baby. It was a difficult birth. But she did it. And she didn't want to tell me. I don't think she came back to because everyone goes, oh no, you delivered home, you know, oh no, how'd you do that? Because here's the girl who's in her senior nursing school, who's been through OB, you know, seen births. I mean, she would be one that I would probably be scared to death to have a child at home. You know, people that don't know and have more confidence in this system uh, at home uh, can see. But a nurse, you know, it's like, I was really surprised. But she changed my mind. She softened my mind. And then I went and talked to her midwife, and that was amazing. And she softened my mind too. So I'm not, I used to be against her birth, and I'm not anymore. But in fact, I almost had to attend one the other night. <laughs> and um, I said, I can't, as a nurse, a risk nurse, I can't do homework. You know, I mean, that would be illegal for me. And I really can't be in attendance unless it's my immediate family. Because if something goes wrong, you know, then we'd be liable. But it's my next door neighbor from Alabama, moves up here. Her husband's one of the driller people, you know. And uh, she had, and I keep hearing this, she had a horrible birth, her first child in the hospital, and that's what's doing this, that's fueling this, this movement. These people have had home birth, uh, hospital births. She ended up with a C-section, didn't want a C-section. Felt that she didn't need a C-section. Felt that she wasn't listened to. You know, her, 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 she didn't feel cared for in the hospital. She didn't feel respected. She, it was horrible. It's almost like post-traumatic stress from birth, which can happen. That's horrible. You know, and she said to me, I'm going to have a 
birth. I said, and she had a C-section. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and she did it. A couple last week she did it. And I was like, and she's right next door. I said, well, I was waiting here to scream for me if you needed me. But she said it went well. She was only in labor four hours. And she had chiropractic care, which she attributed to helping her with her birth. And she was committed totally. You know, she had she just knew she could do it and she was committed to the process. And she had that baby within four hours at home. Yeah. In terms of the role of the father, or maybe the role of the, the, the consequences of the lack of the father. Yeah. In terms of the bonding, because I guess that's more of a problem in today's society. Yes. Um, in terms of the bonding between the mother and the child. Right. What is the consequence of the missing father? Oh. It's, it's, you know, if you don't have a father, the father is the most important, is very, very important. He's very important in definitely going through labor and birth, and but supporting the mother. Because the mother, if they don't have a, a significant other, a husband or father or whatever, um, it's just so hard to do by yourself. I don't know if any of you have had children by yourself or, you know, don't have a significant other around. It's just it's hard to raise children. It's really hard nowadays, I think. You know, not having that support, that financial support, that emotional support, you know, it's it it leaves a big hole in the family. There's no doubt about that. And as children grow, fathers are so different, you know, in their interaction with their children, like there was she was talking about last night. A male role model helps, you know, a grandfather, somebody who who is there to be the surrogate father helps. So if they're connected, but what it's about not closer the same. to the birth? Closer to the birth. Do you feel that there is I know that the birth is affected. If the father's there and supportive, women go through have shorter labors and it it, the outcomes are better. I know that. Less likely, to have, I mean, I would say, obviously, I'm taking it out a little further, but they'd be less likely to have a C-section, too. You know, so the outcomes are better if the father's present. There's no doubt about that. And, but, and fathers are scared. I mean, how many, uh, hundreds I've worked with in the living room. <laughs> They're scared, you know. So they have to have a role. You have to give them something to do. You know, I mean, you really do, because they stand around there, these women nurses come in, they do the stuff, and they run out the door, and you're like, yeah, what am I here for, you know? I know, it's just an observation, because I've been through so many. And I always give the dad something to do. Say, here, do this, do this, then you can help this way, you know? And it makes, you got to get them involved, because they start feeling like they're a left thumb, you know, like they're out, they're appendage that doesn't belong there, you know? <laughs> But, and especially if a woman's going through natural birth without medication, which I used to have, I mean, I was nurse, I've been nursing for four years, and I was thinking about that, I know it's a long time. But I've seen a lot, because when I started, we didn't have any girls, you know? So I had to coach every woman through labor. We had narcotics, but they, you know, after all, those narcotics don't work. Uh, they really don't. Um, so I, I was good at coaching women through labor. 
and there's there's a there's a talent there, and there's something lost, you know, when you don't have that. You know, even the nurse or the father or somebody to help you through labor. Because sometimes when we get epidurals, they don't work. You know, we count on these medications. Sometimes they don't work. You know, so that's the trouble. A lot of our young women, especially, and I'm saying young, because anyone that has a baby, as far as my age is young, okay? Because, <laughs> you know, I'm getting older. But our young women just think they're going to, and they are going to be taken care of, but they just think that I don't have to worry about this, or I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to go to the hospital. They're going to take care of me. They're going to give me an epidural. And I'm not going to feel anything. And, you know, oh man, they, sometimes they really get a shock. <laughs> and it becomes a horrible experience. So every woman I know that's pregnant, I always say, you know, be prepared. You know, learn to breathe. You know, Lamaze breathing helps. It really does. Um, learn, learn to focus. Learn to try to relax during pain, which is a really difficult thing to do. And that's what you have to do. Try to relax during contractions, which are painful. You know, walk around. Don't go to the hospital until you really have to. But if you want to break, you should just you need to go. Because of cord prolapse, they worry about that. Yeah. Sorry, I'm asking sorry. That's okay, don't ask. Um, do you think the drugs that are used have a potential negative effect Definitely. on bonding? Definitely. But if a woman doesn't have some control, if she needs the drug, she needs them. Because we know that high anxiety and pain actually stop labor. So it's a, it's a, there's a dichotomy there, you know? I mean, that's why even, you have no, I mean, no one knows what that feels like. Now maybe if you've had kidney stones, you have a little bit of a, <laughs> they always put kidney stones to labor. And, and everyone's different, you know? I, I saw, I've seen women deliver with almost no pain. And I'm like, oh, how does that happen? You know? <laughs> so I'll say, I was with the nurse, and I, I was with my patient, and I said, you know, her contractions look pretty good. Like, she's complaining. I said, I think you should go check her. She's like, nah, she's going to be a while. Yeah, right. Apparently she's a patient. They went in there, she was fully dilated and ready to go. You know, you, you really have to watch the patient. You know, you can't just watch the monitors. So, you know, some people do deliver easily. A lot of women don't. You know, it takes a long time, especially that first time. And the use of Pitocin is, can be good, but using it for the whole labor and in high doses is not good. Because we know that can produce hemorrhage. So, it's, it's hard to talk about this stuff and not say, you know, natural birth is, is the ideal, but you have to be prepared. Even if you're prepared, whew, it's tough. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.